0: I wake up, uh, Casey wakes up in the morning on Valentine's Day and makes me breakfast. She gets the morning, I get the afternoon and evening. So she makes me a nice breakfast and and all the while I'm sitting there going, oh boy, I forgot to plan Valentine's Day. <laughs> and she turns to me after breakfast and says, so what are we doing? And I say, and, and believe me men, don't ever say this. I say, get your hiking shoes on. She says, oh, Okay a little reluctant, of course, and so she gets her hiking shoes on, and I'm kind of winging it here, and I've got a couple things planned, but but not really, and, and we begin to hike around uh, Ladera Ranch up in the foothills, around Ladera Ranch, and as we are hiking, I'm beginning to realize that uh, I'm I'm kind of getting disoriented a little bit, very unusual for me, because usually I really know my directions, I'm not quite sure where I am. And we end up taking a wrong turn, and Casey says, shouldn't we be going left? And I say, no, no, it's right. I know it's right. So we go right. Turns out we end up on the Ortega Highway from Crown Valley Parkway, and and for those of you that know how far that is, that's a very long and arduous walk. We had blisters on our feet by the time we got to the Ortega Highway, all because I said it's right, not left. We get to the Ortega Highway, and the story continues. We we walk into town and we stop at a little restaurant and chomp down on those tortilla chips because we were so starving. Didn't know how we were going to get home. So I get a good idea. Let's take the bus. You know, I know how to take the bus. <laughs> it's Valentine's Day. Let's take the bus. So we, we go to the bus stop. It's about 3.30. Okay. Bus stop reads, uh, next bus, 3.50. I said, oh, great i only got 20 minutes. The next bus will come by, and I know right where it goes. 350 comes by. No bus. Casey says, well, why don't we just call my parents, and maybe they can come pick us up. (laughs) I said, no, the bus is going to come. 4 o'clock, no bus. 4.10, now I'm getting really mad. No bus. Casey says again, why don't we call Mom and Dad? They're two miles, three miles away. No, we're going to take the bus. No bus comes for a good hour. The bus just did not show up. Maybe he was out on a Valentine's Day date, I'm not sure. So I said, okay, let's, let's call a taxi. I'll call a taxi. I kid you not, this is a true story here. You think I'm embellishing, but I'm not. We call a taxi. Taxi driver said, I'll be there in 30 minutes. I said, 30 minutes? I hang up the phone. I, that, that's too long. I did something I should never do, and I can't, I'm so embarrassed. I called another taxi. I said, I got a guy who can come here in 30 minutes. Can you beat that? Like I said, yeah. But unfortunately, he called the same taxi company. So your taxi cab is canceled. Don't call back. By now, I can't tell you how many times my wife has said, why don't we just call mom and dad? And I said, no. I know how to get home. So instead of the... uh 350 bus we wait for the 450 bus the 450 bus shows up on time get on the 450 bus I go up to the bus the, the driver and I said I'm not paying for this fare you weren't here at 350 He says, well that wasn't my route I said I don't care I'm not paying for this fare my wife by now is just totally embarrassed just a- absolutely mortified at my stubbornness I didn't pay for the fare. The guy, nice bus driver I guess we drive back get off the bus, walk another half mile home because the bus stop wasn't quite near our house and we finally get home and I realize what a pighead I have been all day. I realize how stubborn and how ornery I had been. And had I heeded the advice of my wife, we would have gotten home with a few less blisters and uh, a few less (laughs) moments of heartache and anguish. But I... it just goes to show how stubborn we can be sometimes. Sometimes we are so set in our ways, and I am first in line for that. But some of us are, are stubborn. Some of us are ornery. We're pigheads at times. We all are. And Jesus, in the Gospels, wrote frequently about pigheads. The main group of people that were pigheads in the Bible, you may know, were the Pharisees teachers of the law, the righteous religious leaders. And Jesus was very frank with them. He was very forthright. In His teaching, He told stories about the dangers of their pig-headedness. He warned them that as they were looking within, their own stubbornness, their own self-righteousness, their own desire to be right, He was saying, There's going to be danger. There's going to be judgment as a result of an attitude like that. It's going to include physical death. And it can even include spiritual death if you are stubborn in a certain way, Jesus says to them. This morning, we are going to look at a parable in which Jesus addresses the stubborn, the pig-headed Pharisees. But they don't know He's addressing them initially. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 16. Verses 19 to 31. Open your Bibles if you have them, or you can take a look at the sheet. And you'll want to get a pen out, because I think there's a lot of things you're going to want to mark in this passage. Uh, As I was resonating with it throughout the week, I just became more and more engrossed and amazed at the content in this parable. And some of the things that perhaps we overlook that we ought not to. Take a look in Luke 16, 19. To 31. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his, his sores. So it was that the beggar died. Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father God, open our eyes as we study Your Word. Help us to comprehend the richness of Jesus' words in this section of Scripture. Guide our guide our minds, Holy Spirit. May we have discerning eyes to be able to interpret Your Word and apply it to our lives. In Your Son's name, Amen couple words about parables. We're looking at a parable. Uh, parables over the centuries have been interpreted very, very differently. Many of you are familiar with a man by the name of Augustine, who was a church father. When he approached Jesus' parables, he would say that, oh, they're completely allegorical, was the word he would use. In other words, every component of the story... Implied some hidden meaning in another way or another fashion. If you, if you want to take the time and research this, take a look at Augustine's interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He equates these weird ideas all over the place. That, that, that one of the men is Satan and that, uh, that Jerusalem means something else and Jericho means this and, and he goes into all this allegory as he interprets the parables. And years have gone by in in interpretation of the word of God. And I believe that there has been a better interpretation of parables as of late, as a matter of fact. I think that interpreters have gotten much more wise as to what Jesus was trying to do with the parable. A parable is not an allegory. Let that be very clear. It is not an allegory. There are components which can be allegorical at times in a parable. But more often than not, a parable is much like a joke. When we say a joke, why is a joke funny? Because we immediately get the joke. We immediately understand the humor in the joke. When I say that, and and I'll I'll use a a blonde joke only because my wife lets me use blonde jokes. When I say that there were two blondes and, and one turned to the other and said, which is closer, Florida or the moon? And the other blonde says, duh, You can't really see Florida, can you? Everybody knows that's funny. Why? Because you immediately knew the humor in that joke. You immediately understood. Oh my goodness, I can't believe she would say something like that. In the same way, a parable, as Jesus spoke in parables, in stories, in the first century, they knew what he was talking about. Sometimes we get the perception that that they did not understand Jesus. And at times they didn't. At times he had to explain it a little bit further. But more often than not, the parables were given because they were simple. Because they were understandable. In the sense that they grasped the concept. They understood the concept. But whether or not they applied the concept was what Jesus was saying they would not do. Take a look in Matthew chapter 13 verses 13 to 15. Jesus says this in Matthew 13 regarding parables, He says, therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says hearing. Notice this hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see, but not perceive. The, arts, the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, that I should heal them. It wasn't that they weren't understanding these parables. More often than not, they did understand it. Even the Pharisees. You say, how can that be? Well, the lawyer, when asked, uh, when, when discussing the parable of the Good Samaritan, you read about the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, understood completely what Jesus was saying. The Pharisees, in Matthew 21, verse 45, with the parable of the tenants, it says, and they understood that he was talking about them. The, The parables were understandable to the first century. They got it. They just didn't all apply it. Pharisees got it all the time. That's why they wanted to kill him after he told parables. And maybe that's a misconception that we have about parables, so I wanted to make sure we understand and correct that misconception. More often than not, the parable itself is the message. They understand the story. Now, in this parable, how are we to approach this parable of the rich man and Lazarus? There is a, a section of Scripture just, uh, just preceding this that I wanted to take note of. Jesus has been talking about money. He's been talking about their use of money. He's talked about the prodigal son. He's talked about the unjust steward, some of these parables prior to this. And then he says in Luke 16, verse 14 and 15. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Once again, they heard the parables, and they hated him for it. But you're not going to hate him for it if they don't understand the parable. They hated him for it. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Keep that in mind as we read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Because that is the context. He's saying you esteem yourselves. You stubborn, pig-headed Pharisees. You esteem yourselves. But God doesn't esteem that. Let's get to our text. Take a look at Luke 16 again, starting in verse 19. And we're going to take this bit by bit, section by section, and try to pick apart the meaning of this parable. And again, let me reiterate, this parable was understandable to them. They understood it. The Pharisees understood this parable. And you'll see why in just a moment. But we, 2,000 years removed, we've got to go back and really pick it apart because we're missing some culture here. We're missing some context And you and I need to be a little bit more paying attention to the details as we try to interpret what he was saying to them. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Certain rich man. A certain rich man. Okay, anonymous, right? Who knows? Uh, He could be any rich man. Jesus doesn't name him. Then he says there's a beggar named Lazarus in the next verse. We'll get to that in just a second. Interesting to note, he he doesn't name the rich man, but he does name Lazarus the beggar. Keep that in mind as we continue to look here. Who is this rich man? Well, there's some description about this rich man, Jesus says. certain rich man clothed in purple, indication of royalty, really, of riches. A person who was extremely wealthy. And perhaps of a royal line. Wearing purple in that day was, was very rare and very coveted by the people. Clothed in purple and fine linen, indicating his social status here. This man is, whoever he is, he's high up. And fared sumptuously every day. He ate well. He lived well. He partied well. This man was affluent. He was Affluent. In that culture. Also, of note in this first verse is that there's, um, on the back of your outline here, got some themes here. I'm not going to go through it bit by bit, but there's components of it which we will see. I just wanted to put that on there for your notes. There's no mention of his ethnicity yet, and that is significant. Jesus doesn't identify what kind of man this is, he just says he's a rich man. Could be a Jew. Could be a Gentile. Could be a Greek. Could be a Roman. Who knows who this man is? You say, why is that important? Well, hold on. We're going to get to why that's important. But notice there is no mention of ethnicity in verse 19. Actually, 19 through 23. There's no mention. We don't know who this guy is. What kind of person is he? What background does he have? Verse 20. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. He identifies the beggar. Full of sores who was laid at his gate, the rich man's gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. A beggar. Sores. Laid at the gate. He was laid on the outskirts of the man's property, sitting with dogs, licking his wounds. What a picture. Jesus is painting here. What a contrast. The rich man eating, drinking, making merry, partying. The beggar sitting at the side of his complex, outside the outer gate, holding out his hand to all that walk by. And all he gets is the dogs to pay attention to him. What a contrast in social status. Interestingly enough, Lazarus' name means God helps. God helps. Maybe, uh, maybe a precipitation of what is to come. Jesus names him Lazarus. Well, why, would he, why not pick another name? Why not pick John? Beggar John. Well, I don't know. But it seems to me that Jesus was demonstrating that God was going to do something with this Lazarus. He was going to help him because that's what his name meant. Oftentimes we ask, is this the same Lazarus? as the Lazarus that Jesus raises about, I don't know, six months later or so in his ministry? I would venture to say no. Um, I I can't prove that. But again, a parable is a parable. It's a story. Jesus is not allegorizing here. He's not showing all this hidden meaning all over the place. He's just telling him a story. And Lazarus was a very common name. So to equate this Lazarus with the the future Lazarus is a bit premature. It can be done, and some commentators will do that. And you may share that view. But I'm telling you, it's it's not evident that much is for sure. This is just a a man named Lazarus, for all we know. At this point, again, let me reiterate, the Pharisees do not know what ethnicity this man is. Actually, though, they're starting to deduce what ethnicity he is. And how are they doing that? Well, in verse... In verses 19 to 21, it's indicating that the rich man's eating and the beggar's begging and the rich man doesn't do anything about it. The rich man doesn't do anything about it. The beggar just keeps on begging and the rich man just keeps on eating. So the Pharisees now are listening to Jesus. They're hearing him tell this story and they're thinking, Oh, what a terrible rich man. We might think that they're identifying with rich men. That's not the case. The Pharisees are not identifying with the rich man in the story. Yes, the Pharisees are wealthy. But the Pharisees were do-gooders, and let us keep that in mind. They kept the letter of the law. The Pharisees would have seen Lazarus and would have gone down to him and given him crumbs, or at least some food. Okay? And they would have, but they would have done it by saying, hey everybody, look around, look around, everybody gather. Here's some bread. Watch me. Here I go. Here's a nice piece of meat. They would have done it ostentatiously. They would have had a big show about it. Brought the whole crowd around and said, look what I just did. I, I fed the beggar. Did what the law told me to. I was a good Jew. The Pharisees are distasteful of the rich men at this point in the story. And we may, we may have assumed otherwise, but that is not the case. The Pharisees are listening to Jesus and they're going, oh, boy, what a terrible rich man. Must not be a good Jew. Must be a Gentile on your sheet there. The Pharisees assumed the man to be a Gentile at this point in the story. They assumed that he was a Gentile. Because you know what? A rich Jew, keep this in mind, a rich Jew in the Old Testament was equated with God's blessing. God blessed the rich Jews. Those who had wealth were blessed of God. And so if there was a wealthy person who was not following the letter of the law, must not have been a Jew. Let me say that again. If there was a wealthy person who was not following the letter of the law, not helping the beggar, must have been one of those crazy Roman guys. There's a change in their thinking immediately. Oh, he's talking about those brutes, those guys of Caesar. Those rich Romans that have invaded our land. Finally, he's going to talk about these Romans. Boy, he's been picking on us all along. His whole ministry. Pharisees were sick and tired of Jesus picking on them. They're sick and tired of it. He kept criticizing them, and, that, and now they finally realize, oh, now he's going to talk about those Gentiles. Ah, oh, finally, we get what's due to us. We don't have to hear him picking on us. You say, well, how is he picking on them? Well, take the parable of the Good Samaritan, for instance. Jesus picked on them to no end in that parable. There was a man, he's on his way to Jericho, and as he's on the road, he gets robbed, he gets beaten, he gets thrown in a ditch, and he's he's left for dead. The Pharisees are going, oh my goodness, this is terrible. What a terrible occurrence. The priest walks by. The priest comes up to the man and Sees him on the road, the Pharisees start grinning to each other as Jesus is telling the story. Ah, a holy priest. Of course he's going to help that, that poor guy in the ditch. This is great. Jesus is going to talk about how good we are. Those priests, boy, they always help the guys in the ditch. Because they're a good Jew. They're a prominent Jew. Jesus says, the priest looks at the man and walks by. The Pharisees are just like, what? What would you just say? Did I I hear him correctly? The priest walked by? No. You couldn't have said that. Jesus continues, probably stone-faced, not even flinching at their, what do you mean the priest walked by? And he says, oh, a Levite came by. They go, oh, for a minute there, I thought he was going to say that us Jews don't help. Us good Jews don't help those in the ditch. At least the Levite will come by and help them. Jesus says, the Levite looks at the man in the ditch, walks on by. By this time, let me tell you, if you if you have Luke ten open, you're looking at the terrible good Samaritan. By this time, you should be writing in your Bible: the Pharisees have their jaws dropped. A priest walks by and he doesn't help him. What do you mean? A Levite walks by and he doesn't help him. What are you talking about? That's inconceivable. You're picking on us, Jesus. You're picking on us. And now he puts the icing on the cake in the Good Samaritan. He says, oh, and the Samaritan walks by. They say, oh, well, if the priest didn't help him and the Levite didn't help him, then the Samaritan is probably going to kick him. Jesus says the Samaritan walked up to the man, bandaged his wounds, put him on his donkey, rode him into town, paid the innkeeper to have him recover from his injuries, And said, hey, whatever else I owe you, innkeeper, I'll I'll pay it. Just make sure this guy gets back on his feet. Jaw dropped. Picking on the Pharisees. Jesus was ripping open their world and saying, you're that priest. You're that Levite. They couldn't believe that a Samaritan would help and not a prominent Jew. And I guess to to equate it in modern terms, if we were to say the Good Samaritan parable, the Good Samaritan in modern terms, we might say someone fell in a ditch and a pastor walked by. We all oh, that pastor, he, he's my pastor. He'd help him. Pastor walks by. Guys in the ditch. A uh, an elder walks by, or or a uh, or just Mother Teresa walks by, or the Pope, or, or just think of the kindest person you can possibly think of that could walk by someone in need, and you're going, of course they're going to help. And Jesus says, that person walked by. And the person that helped is like the murderer. The person that helped is like the atheist, Jesus says. And you and I go, well, come on now. A murderer wouldn't help a guy in a ditch. Well, that's what Jesus is saying in the Good Samaritan. He's saying the guy you would least likely to think would help, helped. The Pharisees can't believe their ears. That's in Luke 10. We're in Luke 16. So they're saying, okay, good. You picked on us then, fine. Now you're not going to pick on us. And we like that. They think he is a rich Roman. But he's not. He's not. We're going to find out why. Take a look at verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So now we have the two men dying. The rich man dying, going into the ground, it says. He's buried. Lazarus dying. And again, a contrast. He's taken by angels up into Abraham's bosom. Okay? Um, Abraham's bosom, by the way, we, we've, we need to address that briefly. Paradise, uh, no other way to describe it, just the, the intermediate state prior to the final judgment. Lazarus was redeemed, evidently, story. And he was taken to paradise. He was taken to uh, the, the waiting ground before the final judgment in which he'll receive his rewards. But he was a redeemed soul, he was a believer, and he went to paradise. And Abraham's bosom is just an expression for that. Literally, that he was in Abraham's bosom, in a sense, actually. That he was, Abraham was, was holding the man, welcoming him, perhaps, into the kingdom, in, into paradise. And the rich man, though, has said it's, he's put in the ground, basically. He's just, he just buried. Then it says, and being in torment. So now we go, oh, wow, he's in torment. And by the way, Pharisees are not surprised by this. That brute Roman, that Caesar boy, that rich, wealthy guy who didn't help the beggar like I would have. Yeah, that's right. He's in Hades. We got him now. Jesus is right on our side now. He's in Hades. Being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Pharisees are smiling. What a good story. It is a great story. I love it when the bad guys go to hell. A word about Hades. A painful experience. It's clearly noted there. This guy's in real and evident pain. He is in pain. Here we come to verse 24. Now, this is one of the most fascinating verses in all of scripture to me because it is where the eyes of the Pharisees are just opened beyond their belief verse 24 then he the rich man that crazy Roman brute said father Abraham, wait, wait is that right father Abraham what does your bible say there father okay wait that can't be right right might be a typo there hold on let me get that let's see And he cried, Father, let's see, Father, wait a minute, Father Abraham. Does it say Father in your Bible? It says Father in my Bible too. That's kind of weird, huh? Why is that weird? Father Abraham. All of a sudden this rich man is saying what? I'm a Jew. I'm a rich Jew. I'm not a Roman then he cried and said, Father Abraham. The Pharisees said, wait, hello, wait, say that, say that again, huh? Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Father Abraham. The Pharisees are like, I, I obviously did not hear that right, so, uh, I'll just keep listening, I guess. Jesus must have made a mistake. Jesus makes no mistake here. We see Father Abraham, sometimes we'll just gloss over it. Underline that in your Bible. All of a sudden, a shift in mind has occurred in the story. These Pharisees cannot believe it. This rich man is a Jew. He's rich, which means he's blessed, according to their tradition. And he goes to Hades. Inconceivable to them. Inconceivable. Father, come again? Uh, you mean the, the, the Jewish patriarch father, right, Jesus? Yeah, that's the one. Uh, Jesus, isn't he Roman? No, he's Jewish. Father Abraham. He can't be be Jewish. Oh, no, no, wait, wait, wait wait a minute. He can't be Jewish. Now that it's really starting to resonate. He can't be Jewish, Jesus, because a rich Jew is a good Jew. A rich Jew is, is a blessed Jew. I'm telling you, Jesus, I know Moses and the prophets and what they say, and they tell me that a rich Jew is a good Jew. And a good Jew goes to heaven, Jesus. And you just said that this rich Jew went to hell. That's not right. Jesus said, "All right, let me keep the story going. Look what Abraham says, son. He addresses the rich man as son. Why would they? Why would he call out Father Abraham? By the way, now we now we know he's a Jew. Why would he call it Father Abraham? Luke three eight says this. It says that." Therefore, bearing fruits worthy of repentance, and do therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Jesus says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, "We have Abraham as our father," for I say to you that Jesus is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. It was a common phrase of the day when people would address Abraham as father. They were basically saying, "I'm uh, I'm in good graces with God. I've got the physical lineage with Abraham. I'm a son of Abraham." That means I get into heaven. Blank check. Jesus says, uh uh-uh. uh. That doesn't give you a blank check. Don't call Abraham father and assume you'll go to heaven. Don't call Abraham father and assume I'm going to let you in. So I'd just assume make stones, Abraham's sons. I'd just assume make the stones on the ground as Abraham's heritage. Wow. What a contrast. The rich man assumed that his connection with Abraham would give him eternal life. And not only that, relief and assistance. Notice, he calls out to Abraham. What does he ask him to do? He says, send Lazarus over and have him uh, dip his finger in water so he can cool my tongue. Think about the magnitude of that for a minute now. Send the guy who I overlooked my whole life, yeah, the beggar, yeah, the guy outside my gate who I didn't pay attention to, send him over. Send that servant guy over and cool my tongue. If I'm the son of you, Abraham. Doesn't that warrant relief? Doesn't that warrant assistance? Jesus says, "Uh-uh. This man's not going to get that." By the way, that, that dipped the finger of the tip of his finger in water. And cool my tongue. That's kind of a, a, that phrase has a lot more weight to it. It, it really means let me be completely and utterly quenched, uh, have my thirst quenched. I want to be quenched. I am thirsty. It's it's an idiom. It's it's an expression, and it actually means that he he is just dying of thirst and he wants a big glass of water. Again, we're seeing the torment in Hades, a painful experience. Isn't it also interesting that that uh, that this rich man isn't comforted by being in hell? Oftentimes, I, I know that in the world's day, you know, when we, we think we we hear people say about hell, well, I got a lot of friends going there. I got a lot of buddies of mine who are going to be in hell. So you know what? I I don't really care about my eternal destination because at least I'll be with my buddies, and uh, that. That conception, I've heard people say that. I've got family members that say that. And I'm thinking to myself, are you even understanding what you are saying? Hell is pain. Hell is torment. And how do I know that? The rich man says, okay, fine. If if you're not going to quench my thirst, then go to my brothers. We're going to see that in just a minute. He says, go to my brothers. Tell them not to come here. I don't want them to come here. Hell is not a place. Where people are going to enjoy being. Nor are they going to want their friends there. They're going to want everybody they know to get as far away as possible. Lazarus, uh, excuse me, Abraham denies his request for the quenching of his thirst. Verse 25. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Likewise, Lazarus is evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented and besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. In the physical, rich man was blessed, beggar was spat on, really. In the spiritual, there's a great contrast rich man is in torment, the lowly is. Exalted in heaven. There's a turn of events here. It's not due, by the way, just keep this in mind, it's not due to the fact that the rich man didn't help Lazarus. And I want to make that clear. He is not in Hades because he did not help Lazarus. We're going to see later on why he's in Hades. And Lazarus is not in heaven because he was just humble. We're going to see why a little bit later. There's a great goal fixed. There's eternal separation between the place of the redeemed and the unredeemed, and some would speculate too. They say, "Well, see in this parable, Neil, there's a there's, they can communicate across the way, right? There's there's Hades and there's Paradise and or Abraham's bosom, and they're able to talk and interact with one another, and that's true. The parable does specify that, but again, it's a story and it's meant to communicate a message, not doctrine. And uh, it, it, we, we derive doctrine from it, but it itself is not mes- intended to communicate doctrine." And so I would say that I would look elsewhere in Scripture to warrant the view that we will be able to see Hades while we're in paradise. I don't believe that's true. I don't think Scripture warrants that. I think this is intended to to just prove a point. Jesus is simply saying that the man was seeing paradise, so to speak, and, and he wanted relief. But he couldn't get relief because there's eternal separation in the afterlife. So keep that in mind. We're not to assume, based on this teaching, that we will be able to see those in Hades. You'd have to look elsewhere in Scripture to warrant that. Verse 27, we're, we're, we're getting now to some more of the meat of the passage. Then he said, the rich man, Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. Again, he calls Abraham father. By now the Jews are like, I just can't believe this guy's a Jew. I can't believe it. I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. doesn't want him to be there. I beg you. There's desperation setting in. I beg you. You denied my first request, Abraham. I am your son. I am a Jew. And you denied my request. And now I'm beseeching you. Now I'm begging you. Give me this request. Send Lazarus. Send the guy I overlooked. Remember him? The the rich Jew still doesn't understand the hypocrisy of this. He's asking Lazarus. The man he ignored for his lifetime. His physical lifetime. Send Lazarus to my brothers. That's the least he can do. Jesus is here communicating that this man, he just doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. Lazarus isn't going to go to your brothers. He can't go to your brothers. When this life is over and we are in the afterlife, there's there's no turning back. There's no ability for us to return and warn those who are our family, our friends. It's only in this lifetime that we have that chance. The rich man was utterly um, concerned for his brothers. He didn't want them to be there. And it reminds me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. Paul said, My heart is filled with bitter, bitter sorrow and unending grief. For my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. There's a parable that really illustrates that, I think. Paul's anguish over the, the Jewish people in Romans 9, 2 and 3. He, he says, "I God, I wish I were accursed if only they could be saved. Maybe you can identify with that, with a family member. Someone that you hold so dear, as Paul held his Jewish brethren dear. And you wish to God that they would be saved. And that perhaps you would go so far as to say that you'd be willing to be cursed if they would be saved. Because you love them so much. That's just a small hint of what this rich man is feeling here. He's saying, I don't want them to be here. I'll do whatever it takes. Send them. Send Lazarus over to them. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. Gives us a picture of urgency, doesn't it? It's this life, ladies and gentlemen, that, that counts. There's nothing else after this. Those you love and that are not saved, that you do not know is saved. There is no greater time than right now. To give them a call, to write them a letter. Meet with them, sit down with them, and discuss with them your, your grave concern for them. But do it with gentleness and respect. Twenty nine, Verse 29, Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. No rich man, Jewish rich man, I'm not going to send Lazarus, he can't go anyway. But besides, there is a sufficiency that your brothers have that you are not aware of. There is a sufficient message that is available to them that you do not understand. And that is the message of Moses and the prophets. What does he mean by that? Abraham's referring to the testimony in the Old Testament scriptures. They've already been given a chance, according to the teachings of Moses and the teachings of the the prophets in the Old Testament. They've been given a chance to turn to God in faith, the God of Israel, in faith. And turn in faith to the hope of the coming Messiah, which is mentioned all throughout the message of, of Isaiah, in particular, and in many, many other scriptures in the Old Testament. There are hundreds of scriptures which attest to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Abraham is saying... They have those, and that those are sufficient. That's enough. Take a look at the, the word here in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. The Greek word there, the verb is akouo, which means to hear, but it has much more of the idea of obedience. In other words, to hear and obey, to take heed, to listen and to apply which is precisely what the Pharisees didn't do in the parables, is what what I started this message with. They heard, but didn't akuo, didn't heed. They heard, but didn't heed. Jesus, Abraham is saying, let them hear Moses and the prophets. Let them take heed to what they are saying. Let them take heed to what they are saying. Look what his response is. Look what the rich man's response is. No. No. He said, no, Father Abraham. No. Start with no. No. What does that mean? No, they're not sufficient? Maybe. No, they're wrong? No, he's, he's a Jew. He wouldn't think that. He wouldn't call Moses and the prophets wrong. So he must be saying, no, that's not enough. No, that's not enough. Uh-uh. I heard that. The rich man says, I heard that. I heard Moses. I heard the prophets. And I'm in Hades. Abraham says, no, you didn't, you heard. But you didn't akul. you didn't heed. Man's saying, I, I'm telling you, I heard this. I heard this message. I heard Moses and the prophets. And I am here to tell you that that message is not sufficient. Because I am in Hades. Abraham says, well, then that means you didn't understand the message. No, that won't work. What we can infer from this is that this rich man did not hear the true message of Moses and the prophets. And not only that, keep, take note of this, not only that, he knew his brothers heard the message as he did. He knew his brothers heard the same message. And because of that, he knew where they were going to go, to Hades, to hell. No, uh-uh, Abraham, that's not enough. So here's what I want you to do, because I know that's not enough, because I'm in hell. Uh, Let's, hey, uh, I got an idea. Send the guy, yeah, send the beggar, the guy, I didn't pay attention to him, but send him back from the dead now, that's a good idea. And then that, along with Moses and the prophets, which I guess I didn't understand, will be sufficient for them not to go hear Hades. Yeah, that's my plan. That's enough. What's he asking for? He's asking for a sign. He's asking for a miraculous intervention. He's asking for a wonder. Because the testimony of the Word of God wasn't sufficient, obviously. He's asking for a miracle. You ever done that? <laughs> Um, I've, I've had, uh, you know, kids when I was doing youth ministry for a while, I've had kids say, Neil, I asked God to send a shooting star and he did. And I'm so excited. Now I believe in him. I'm thinking, great. And what if he asked Buddha to send a shooting star and it happened? They would have been like, uh, well, I wouldn't believe in that. Okay. Why? I don't know. But God sent a shooting star through the sky. Or, God gave me a winning lottery ticket, so now I'm going to believe in him. God mowed my lawn for me. Didn't have to mow it this week. What do you know? I'm going to believe in him now. I got an A on the test. I Prayed for an A and I got an A. And now I can believe in God. Oh, this is so futile. I can't believe Abraham continues to converse with this man at this point. And uh, what is this reminding us of? In First Corinthians chapter one, I don't think I wrote it up on the board, but First Corinthians one, Paul says the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. And he's implying that what more do you need than the word of God? You don't need a miracle to believe. You don't. You don't need a miracle in your life to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Here's the miracle. It's the Word of God. It's all in here. In fact, you can just take the Old Testament and it would be sufficient. According to Abraham, it's all in here. This is sufficient. It doesn't take a miracle. Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach the truth. Here's the truth of the matter. Here's what happened. Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. We get the message, those who are redeemed. We don't need to request a miraculous sign in our lifetime to believe in God. Not only that, the, 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 the thought of Lazarus coming from the dead is, is a type of what is to come. There's a couple of resurrections coming up, right? The resurrection of Lazarus. Which, in my opinion, is a different man, and also the resurrection of Jesus. And Abraham says, he, "Remember, he says, um, you know, even if one goes from the dead, they won't be, they won't repent." So your request is ridiculous, because even if one rises from the dead, they won't repent. And they say, "Well, sure they will, sure they will. If there's a miraculous sign, well, take a look. I don't want to turn to it, but take a look in the story of the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11. It says that some believed." After Lazarus rose from the dead, and then it says, and some went out and plotted to kill Jesus. Miraculous sign. The rich man assumes, hey, give him a miraculous sign to my brothers, and they'll believe. Jesus says, okay, uh, well, um, or Abraham says, no. And six months later, you're going to understand why. Because when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, some of them don't believe. Case in point. Doesn't take a miracle. How about Jesus' resurrection? Do all believe in Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead? No. Some are hard-hearted. Some are stubborn. Some are ornery. They're pigheads in a sense. And I know that sounds a little cruel. And, and you, you say, well, you know, that's that's kind of rude. But I call a spade a spade here, and that's what Jesus is calling them. He's saying it doesn't matter what I show them. It doesn't matter what sign I give them. Those who have a stone heart. They won't believe anyway. Soften your heart. Soften your heart. Take a look at the message that is contained in the Word of God. St. Hodges notes a really interesting point in this part of the passage. He says, the rich man is mistaken. About a couple things. He's mistaken about the possibility of receiving relief from Lazarus. He's also mistaken about the impact... That Lazarus could have on his five living brothers. But at least he does not, he does know that his brothers need to get right with God. And it was natural for him as a Jew to indicate this need by a reference to repentance. We are certainly not to infer that he was awakened in hell with a the clear cut theology of salvation by grace through faith. And that is so, that is so true. This man still didn't get it. And that's why he's asking these requests. Send a sign. No, sign's not gonna work. You don't get it. You still don't get the message. He's saying, they'll repent. Repent of what? Repent of what? I can't believe Abraham didn't say that. Repent of what? What are you, t- what are you saying they'll repent? Are you saying that you didn't do something to get into heaven? That you missed something that you had to do? Richmond says, yeah. Abraham says, no. You didn't believe. You didn't believe in the message. That's the point. And how do I know that Abraham's responding in this way? How do we know that? Because of a word called, a, a verb in the, in the very next verse, verse 31. It's, it's the word persuaded there. Persuaded. Here we go. We're concluding up here with verse 31. This verb is patho in the Greek. And Abraham is saying, It doesn't matter what good works or what bad works they're repenting of or what what things that they forgot to do that didn't get them into heaven. Abraham is saying they were not persuaded to believe in the God of Israel, in the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were not persuaded to believe in Jesus Christ. And that is he was not. And that is why the rich man is in hell. Take a look at verse 31. But Abraham concludes and he says to him, If they didn't hear Moses... They didn't hear the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, there's that word, though one if one rises from the dead. Though one were to rise from the dead. If he, he says to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. They will not be persuaded. That word persuaded there. Luke uses it here. And uses it in Acts. In Acts chapter 28, verse 23 and 24. So this is Paul, by the way. This is Paul at Ephesus. And, excuse me, Paul in Rome. Paul's in Rome, under house arrest, preaching the message of the kingdom. And he says, so when, and Luke is narrating here, so when they had appointed him a day, Paul, many came to him in his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, And persuading them. Paul was persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets, sufficient, interestingly enough, from morning till evening, and some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. Juxtapose. Some were persuaded and some disbelieved. What does that tell you persuaded means? They believed. Some believed and some did not. Some believed the message of Moses, of the prophets, of Jesus, and some did not. They disbelieved. They were not persuaded. Back to our text, the final verse. Abraham says, But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. They won't believe. They'll one rise from the dead. Verse 30. They'll repent. I tell you, if you send Lazarus, they'll repent. Repent of what? Abraham would respond. It's not what they did or what they didn't do, it's that they didn't believe. They didn't believe. That's why. They won't believe, even if I send a sign. And you didn't believe, rich Jewish man. And that's why you're in Hades. Okay, back to the Pharisees, who, who we started with to begin with. They heard the message now. And they got it. Let me tell you, they understood this to a T. Well, I'll, I'll say they understood this until about 31. <laughs> Verse 31, they, they, and that, that might have flown over their heads. What do you mean, believe? Just Believe. Yeah, just believe. But I'm from Abraham. I'm a son. He's my father. Doesn't get into heaven. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a rich Jew. Remember, I'm a blessed Jew. Doesn't get into heaven. Here's a rich Jew who didn't do anything and went to hell. Uh, but, um, well, okay, I've got no other claims to heaven now. They, they're out of claims. And Jesus says, persuaded. You need to be persuaded to believe. You need to get rid of your pigheadedness, your orneriness, your stubbornness, your stony heart. And you need to be persuaded to believe in the message. And what is that message? How do we become rich toward God? How do we enter heaven? It's by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. You believe, you're saved. It's not a prayer. It's not a work not something you do or don't do you get to heaven by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Messiah the one who is able to redeem your souls from death give you eternal life. how do we apply this message in as we close a couple things and I don't want to overlook the physical because this is a point it's a subpoint. But it is a point of the parable. And the first application is this. Um, Our resources are to be used to benefit others in need. Don't miss that point. Jesus was very clear. Keep keep the law. Keep the law. Keep what what God wants you to do. Our resources are to be used to benefit others in need. I will admit that that is not a main point. But that is a sub-point. We need to keep that in mind. Help those in need. Don't overlook that. Um, The rich man was not sent to Hades because he overlooked it. But he was disproved because he overlooked Lazarus. He was looked upon with shame by God. Pay attention to those in need. Pay attention to those who need your help. Whatever resources you might have, money, time, skills. Secondly, our faith is not predicated. That word predicated means it's not contingent upon Signs and wonders alone, but on the true testimony of the Word of God. That's a key point. Let me tell you right now. That's a point of the parable. Our faith is not predicated on signs and wonders, but on the Word of God. And finally, no amount of goodness, of charity, of self-sacrifice can warrant entrance into heaven. It is only by grace, through faith in Christ, that we are saved. That's it. That's it. The Pharisees heard that. But they didn't heed that. They understood the story. but They couldn't fathom that it could be true of them. Don't let it be true of you. Soften your hearts. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you do not believe in Him, I I exhort you to search the Scriptures yourselves and at least give it a shot. Take a look at what it has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.